The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Jamie Anderson, and today we're talking with Dr. Twani Dukeshire about dance, embodied movement, and anti-oppressive practice to support well-being. Dr. Twani Dukeshire is an educator, consultant, and author, and she brings a wealth of classroom experience to our conversation today, and that includes K-12, university, and dance classrooms. Twani, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the pod class. Ooh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. And uh, for, for those folks who've been listening for a long time, you kind of know the rhythm of our podcast. The very first question we always ask um, as a reminder to our audience to, you know, engage in some sort of activity to support their well-being while they listen is we ask for your habits uh, to take care of your own well-being. So Tawani, can you share with us some of your go-to habits uh, right now for, for tending to your own well-being? Yes, and I love I love this question and I love that it starts this way, right? Like I just think it's so important and it made me I really enjoyed reflecting on this. Um I have three main things right now that really contribute to my well-being. Uh the first is that I start every day with meditation and deep breathing. Um so I do a a gratitude meditation where I I think about, I start my meditation with this gratitude meditation where I go through every part of my body and think about why I am thankful for that part of my body. And I think it helps me to think about um, what my body can do. You know, I think that in a lot of times in our society and with social media, especially we start, it's easy to get focused on what our body looks like. And I love starting my day by thinking about what I am thankful for in terms of what my body can do and what it does for me. Um, And I love doing deep breathing. I'm a person who's been known to hold my breath. And my kids will say like, I'll, we'll be doing something and I'll go, (sighs) and they'll say, Oh, (laughs) what happened? And I'll just realize that I've been holding my breath. So to start my day and really be intentional about my breathing um, helps me to also recognize that breathing is this full bodied experience. So that makes a huge difference in my in my day. Um, I welcomed a, a puppy into my life recently and walking my dog every day is another thing that really contributes to my well-being. I love just being out in the fresh air and the sunlight. And then a, a huge part of my life is dancing. And it has been for over 35 years that dancing always is the place where I feel my best, where I feel the most joy. I feel boundless joy because I love the way that it challenges my mind and my body and my and my spirit, right? And I love that I'm expressing myself individually, but I'm also this beautiful sense of being part of a collective. And I am that student who's just like in class, like smiling the whole time, like this, like, and I'm sure the teachers are like, "Oh, she's she's really into it," but like, <laughs> I just can't control that. It's just so much joy that I get from that experience, and it also is a place where it makes me feel really um, present. That I can't do all the worrying that I would normally do because I really have to focus on what I'm doing. And even if I can't take a class, I love dancing just around the house or if I go to the gym I dance on the treadmill and I've been known to dance in the grocery store but it's my favorite it's one of my favorite things oh that's so fantastic I I love it I'm really excited about talking with you today in connection with dance too because I feel like it's one of the most underrated um like low equipment super accessible movement activities and um to your point, like it, it is a way to express individuality and connect with other people. So I'm really excited to talk about that. Uh, but I really love what you shared about all of your go-to well-being activities. And, and I think some of those themes will probably carry through the rest of our conversation uh, as well. So I'm really excited to, to dig in. Thank you for that introduction. Um, and now maybe you can introduce yourself a little bit more and, and share with our listeners a little bit more about your pathway into the field of education and what you're most passionate about in your work as an educator, as a teacher. Oh, I love talking about what I'm passionate about. Um, I, I went into teaching because I wanted to change the world. And I know that that's, you know, we've had this 
I've gone through these cycles of like, oh, changing the whole world is a too big of a task for one teacher and it's unrealistic. And, and I've gone through all of that and, and I've really kind of come full, full circle in the sense of knowing that one interaction with one student also is changing the world, right? Like I have had experiences with teachers that taught me, that made me feel seen and valued and cared for and capable of so much more than I thought I was capable of. And it impacted the rest of my life. And I think that it is a beautiful thing to remind us of, of the power and the, also the immense like responsibility that we have as educators to remember that you may not know when that is happening, <laughs> But it's happening and it will happen at some point in your career that you will have an interaction. And we have this opportunity with students to like to help them feel seen and valued and cared for. And that does impact the world that one individual is connected to the collective. And it's a really great thing that I'm constantly thinking about. Um, I did my first degree in English and dance as I wanted to prepare to do my education degree. Um, I was told, why are you taking English and dance? You'll never get a job. And then um, I did get a job teaching English and dance. <laughs> so uh, following the things that I am really passionate about has always um, served me well. And it has allowed me this beautiful opportunity to have a career that always aligns with what I believe in and what I value and what I am passionate about. And that is such a gift for me. Um, one of these great opportunities I had in my B.Ed. experience was I got to go um, for a semester down to Seattle and work one on one with Anne Green Gilbert, who is a dance educator and the, t and the author of the book um, Creative Dance for All Ages. And she just opened my whole world to the idea of how we can teach through movement. Like we can teach dance, but we can also teach science through embodied movement and through dance. And so that has really impacted my career as well. Um, I did get an opportunity to teach. I was teaching high school English and dance, and I was doing poetry in my dance classes and dance in my poetry and English classes. And I thought that was great. Um, I also feel like I also got an opportunity to stay home with my children. So I was a stay-at-home mom, and that is a whole different kind of teaching that, that really helped open my eyes into how I got the opportunity to see these, these changes, these small changes in my own children, just one-on-one. -on -one. And that really um, broadens my sense of, of how we learn and how we teach and how we engage with the world. I did my M.Ed., which I, I just love my master's degree so much. Like I am kind of a professional learner and um, it just opened to me to social justice and the implicit curriculum and arts integration. And I was so inspired by that that I started my Ph.D. I did my Ph.D. in curriculum and learning. Um, I my research focused on the embodied lessons that students learn from the hidden curriculum. And I had a great supervisor and she actually is one of those teachers that changed my direction of my life. She was like, I think you might like to do arts-based research. And I was like, I didn't even know what that was. And it became such a focal point and how a, just a summation of everything I had been doing. And while I was doing that, I also started my own company as a, uh, an artist in residence. So I taught as an artist in residence in elementary schools. And I was teaching the curriculum, like core curriculum, like English and science and social studies um, through movement. And that, that has afforded me so much joy and so much hope and just beauty in the world and what students have to offer. And so that has, that informed all of my uh, research methods and I also got to then teach in the undergraduate and graduate programs in the School of Education. And then I even did my postdoc <laughs> and I focused on decolonizing <laughs> literacies. So yeah, professional, professional student. And I really, I love learning and I think it's exciting to learn from everything around us. Um, okay. Are we ready for all my passions? Yes. <laughs> I, I love that. I mean, I, your, your, your pathway as, as an educator is, is so interesting and so exciting too. Um, yeah, like I'm, I'm so excited to hear about your passions and what keeps you going through all of your degrees. Like as someone who's 
slogging through my PhD right now. Um, your passion is very inspiring uh, and, and obviously like has carried you uh, through all of these different directions of your career. I feel like, yeah, I've been lucky to just bring my whole self into every, all of my studies and all of my teaching. And that makes me feel this a sense of wholeness, right? That this is aligning with everything of who I am. Um, I am really passionate about supporting teachers and students in broadening how we think about teaching and learning and embracing our bodies as powerful places of knowledge and also as tools for learning. Um, I'm really obviously passionate about dance and arts integration and anti-oppressive pedagogy and decolonization and love. Um, I'm passionate about thinking about ways that we can help students to feel seen and cared for and valued. And also in recognizing that in doing that, sometimes that will demand of us to be um, activists in the classroom as sometimes helping our students to feel safe and valued and cared for is an act of resistance in systems that are focused on standardization. And I just think that education has the possibility for transformation in such a beautiful and positive way. And it allows us the opportunity to dwell in learning what it means to be fully human and the ways that we can care for both ourselves and others in society. So I think if in any conversation that comes up in our house, there will always be a point where I'll say, well, you know, I think this really comes back to education. <laughs> like, because I do, I think it's so important yeah. what we do in classrooms and mm -hmm. in all kinds of learning spaces, right? And the way that we um, invite each other to fall in love with the world is important. Absolutely. I I love bringing love in, into that space because I feel like often um, that's forgotten about in the minutiae of the tasks and the, yeah, like the standardization, like you mentioned, but like that falling in love with the world uh, around them, like for students, I think that's so important. Uh, and and really connected explicitly and implicitly to well-being, which is really what we uh, we focus on in our in our podcast is thinking through approaches and practices to support well-being in in schools and classrooms and communities. Uh, and obviously, I was really excited to inter interview you for an episode because I think your work is so creative and thoughtful and really deliberately examines the hidden curriculum of schooling and how um, messages that are like that counteract well-being and, and cause harm can be learned and internalized um, from the world around us. I think you mentioned like through social media, the ways that we're taught to not like to to want to change our bodies or to not love our bodies. Um, there are lots of other things as well through the hidden curriculum that our students are learning and internalizing and that's negatively impacting their well-being. Um, so I, I'm hoping we can maybe dig into a little bit of your lens on well-being, what well-being means to you and maybe like the theories, the literature that you draw upon to understand well-being in school spaces. I really feel that well-being for me is a sense of wholeness and an experience of wholeness. And it's um, that experience of embracing our whole selves and not forcing any part of ourselves to be marginalized or diminished or minimized. Um, it's having all of my needs met, like physical and mental and spiritual and feeling safe feeling safe in that space to be my whole self. And I think that if I could do that for students and for the people around me to help them and to create and foster a space where they can feel like they can be their whole selves and that is embraced. I think that that is really a goal for me. Um, I think that sense of wholeness also comes from being valued as an individual and as part of a collective and that interconnection between those things. Um, some of my some of my like theories and literature, you know, I draw upon in terms of wellness is often not from books and and articles, but some of it, a lot of it is also from the learning that I've done in the world and also from nature. So a big guide for me is um, starling murmurations. And most people who have met me will know that. But a murmuration of starlings could be like tens of thousands of starlings. And 
there's they're all individual birds but they're flying as this flock and they're not flying the way like geese do with this really specific organization right of the v but they're flying as this huge flock and they are changing directions and changing um levels and changing speeds all at the same time and you don't ever see any of the birds like bonking into each other and falling down and the thing i love about that as well is that all these different people have tried to understand it, like ornithologists and biologists and mathematicians and poets have all tried to understand what's happening with the starling murmuration. And I think that that is also a lovely way to think about learning that in order to understand any concept or anything in the world, we need to look at it from all of those viewpoints and all of those ways of knowing. And that sense of wholeness um, comes together. So we're thinking about how can we understand this topic through the math, through the science, all those things that have been fragmented in schools, they live together in the world, right? They came and they come from the wholeness of the world. And then we have taken them and separated them into our curriculum outcomes and our program of studies. But they come from the world and they all fly together. And they think that the starlings um, are paying attention, very close attention to the five or six starlings around them. And so that sense of, of touch of connecting and paying attention to those of those people and those ideas and those teachers and administrators and students and parents and and desks and everything around us. Um, to guide our flight in the world and then to create because they do that they create this beautiful like painting in the sky a moving painting in the sky and or a dance in the sky right and it's so fascinating and it's so powerful I think that recognizing the power that can come from collective motion is an important thing for us to think about in our schools and how um, sometimes there are a lot of ways in schools that we want people only to be individuals and to isolate and to don't copy my answers and be on their own. And we sometimes can forget the power that comes from us as a collective. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that really guides my thinking. Um, I'm also really guided by the theory of Ubuntu or the ethic of responsibility. It comes from um, South Africa, but it's also experienced in other countries in Africa. And Ubuntu means I am because we all are. And so I am me because of this collective and the collective is the collective because I am in it. And so that interconnection between the individual and the group really brings that sense of wholeness. And it reminds me that the choices that I make impact everyone and the choices that other people make impact my life. And that makes me feel responsible for myself and also for the group. Um, I think Dr. Leroy Littlebear is a Blackfoot scholar, and he said this beautiful thing about wholeness, that wholeness is like a flower with four petals. When it opens, one discovers strength, sharing, honesty, and kindness. Together, these four petals create balance, harmony, and beauty. And I just think, oh, like, those are the main core things that I want in my classroom, that when someone leaves, I want them to feel a sense of strength and sharing and honesty and kindness. And, um, balance and harmony and beauty and that unity within within the diversity right is so so important to me in in terms of creating a space where i feel safe um i'm also there's so many ways that we can learn about wellness and it off i mean this idea of wholeness and it often doesn't come from um colonial or capitalist ideas because those theories and capitalism isn't really designed around us being whole. It's designed around us wanting more. Thank you for sharing that, Tawani. And, and I also appreciate um, reflecting on well-being um, and through through lenses and theories that are kind of an antidote to the very like capitalistic colonial um, fragmentation that we experience in so many ways. Uh, through the actual curriculum, like you mentioned, through the fracturing of, of subject areas and through how we disconnect time and, and place and, and people. So I, I think that's such a, a great way for us to move through um, this conversation, thinking about well-being and, and its connection to wholeness. So yeah. let's shift a little bit, if that's okay, into the concept of hidden curriculum, because um, in our conversation so far, we've talked about it a little bit, uh, but I'd like to dig in a little bit more about 
the, the concept, what it means, what are the types of messages that students are learning and experiencing as a result of schooling? Um, could you share some examples, maybe explain like the hidden curriculum and share some examples of the hidden curriculum of schooling that emerged from your research? Yes. Um, one of the things that I think is important to know about the hidden curriculum is that the word hidden has can have kind of a pejorative connotation that this idea that it's always going to be something negative. And actually, it just means that everything teaches. That's how I like to think about it. And I think that, you know, Elliot Eisner, um, in his article, The Three Curricula That All Schools Teach, he doesn't use the word hidden curriculum. He used the word implicit curriculum. And I think that that's a nice way of understanding it, that um, there's the explicit curriculum, and that's what we explicitly state that we're going to teach. So that's present in the in the program of studies. And you can look it up and you can say, oh, you're going to be teaching um, fractions and you're going to be teaching uh, poetry and you're going to teaching adding and it's really explicit and then the implicit curriculum or the hidden curriculum is all the lessons that we learn because of the way that school is organized because of the way that we organize the the classrooms themselves because of the desks because of the spaces because of the windows when I was started teaching I was in a in a school that had been built I think it may be the 70s and there was this time when they thought that students would feel distracted if they saw outside. And so the windows were really, really small. So the fact that they don't want to students to see the world outside, that teaches a lesson about what is valued. And so that is the sense of the hidden curriculum, um, is that everything in the way that we organize our um, assessments, our day, the bells that we ring, the way that we welcome students into the school, where the classrooms are, um, how we separate students by age group, all of those things teach a lesson about what society as a whole, that's the message, um, sees as valuable. So whose stories are told, um, whose stories, and then there is this null curriculum, whose stories are not told, right? What do we not talk about? What do we ignore? What do we silence? So those are the three curricula. We have that explicit curriculum. We have that implicit curriculum or the hidden curriculum. And then we also have the null curriculum, which is also really important to recognize what is not talked about. Um, and we're seeing, you know, a lot about that coming up in the news about, oh, we are not going to be speaking about pronouns and we are not going to be speaking about this. So that teaches a really strong lesson about what and who are valued. And so if we want students um, to come out of school feeling a sense of wholeness, we have to look at what are the choices that we made in our classrooms that actually teach that wholeness is valued here. Right. And so that's really important. Um, in my doctoral research, I did arts based research and I used dance as a form of interview. So I had students represent ideas through movement and dance. Um, then I used pedagogical documentation and I videotaped and photographed those those movements and those dances. And I asked the students to watch them and comment about what they saw. And then I audio recorded their comments. And then they listened to those comments, wrote down keywords that they heard, and then turn those into poems, turn those into found poetry. And so then I looked at all of that together on my own. And then I danced these concepts that came up with a group of dancers and did the same thing, photographed and videotaped, commented and reflected and wrote poetry about all of those things. And so um, these themes that came up um, come from that process. A big one was the idea of leveling. And that was huge. In all of the images, I had the students work in groups, small groups, and they said, I said, represent school. Just show me what school is in through your bodies. And all, almost all of the images or the shapes that they created, the tableaus that they created involved these levels and the levels were associated with power and with value. So even some of the grade four students said, um, well, the lowest one is the student, the middle one is the special helper, and the top one is the teacher. 
The highest one is the teacher. And the grade 11 and, and 12 students talked about how, well, we started from the bottom, now we're here, right? And they're quoting Drake, but they have this sense that the bottom is low and it has a low value and the top is high and it has a high value and that schooling was a process of, of getting to the top. Another thing that came up was the sense of being surveilled but not seen. So there were a lot of images where the students represented students and teachers. And those were both in the um, tableau or the frozen shapes, but also in their choreography. If there was a teacher present in the image or in the dance, the students and the teacher were never, ever, ever looking themselves, looking each other in the eye. And so the teacher would be looking at the student and the student would have their head down or the student would be looking at the teacher and the teacher would be looking at the board. And so this sense that we are being surveilled, but not truly sometimes seen as, as our whole selves. And there were images in there where students often became the furniture of the classroom. They became the desks. They became the chairs. And um, I think that that is something that often does come up, that um, there are students, there are students that are loud and need a lot of attention and you know their names right away. And I think that in all... There are times where there are students who are quietly get through the day and they become kind of like the furniture of school that's, that makes the school happen, but they don't necessarily feel seen. And especially in a space where we are suddenly having more and more and more students in our classrooms, right? So it's not that it's a judgment of, of um, teachers. It's, a, it's an awareness of what the system creates, right? The, the constraints that the system creates on us, that it is sometimes tricky to keep up with all the things in the program of studies and all the interruptions that happen in schools and also make space and time to really feel um, that you're seeing every student and they are feeling seen and valued and cared for. And I think that that is a challenge that we are faced with, but it's an important thing to recognize so that we are aware of it. And I think that that's, you know, it's not so much about how can we disrupt the hidden curriculum because there will always be a hidden curriculum, right? It, because everything in the classroom teaches, but it's how can we be aware of it so that we are making thoughtful choices in our classroom, knowing that we are aware of the constraints that we have because of the system and also recognizing what are our options in this classroom? Um, there were other wonderful things about love, right? Love was really important. Um, as part of the, of the choreography, had the students write uh, a sanguine poem about school. And so a sanguine poem starts with a noun and ends with a synonym that's supposed to relate to the noun. And their synonym was home. And in order to, and to represent that in their choreography, they created this kind of human puzzle where one person would make a shape and then another person would roll into the space and, and somehow connect to them and touch them and then freeze and then another person would come in and until they were this big mass like like a murmuration but they were all touching and the most beautiful part of that for me was watching how their faces changed as they felt someone's hand on their ankle or on their shoulder and that they felt connected to this whole group and I think that they have this strong sense of love and that's important to them um, and also the sense that there's not always enough time afforded to really fall in love with anything at school, right? There's all, well, you know, we've all been in ex of classrooms where as students and as teachers, where you just get going and then the bell rings and then, well, that's over. So there's that sense of just the system itself and the structure of schools can often limit the amount of time we have in the way that we can engage in falling in love. Falling in love is slow and beautiful and takes time and takes um, attention to detail and and engagement and I think that if we can find more ways to to find that space for love in our classrooms that is something that I learned from my research that I try to um, do in my own teaching and another thing is that learning feels like an explosion and you know like the grade four students represented learning 
and they're all in this clump all together. And then I would say, so I would read their poem out. And as I read each word, they would do the movements that they had chosen for that. And so I would say learning and they would all, they all just jumped backwards, this big explosion out, right? And they like a, like a firework going off. And I think like sometimes I think it's just so important to remember that that's what learning feels like. It's like this explosion. And how can we make space for that in our classrooms? Because it's really easy to to get sucked into feeling like we got to get through it. We got to get through it. We got to get through all this stuff. And um, even just to notice the explosions. And sometimes they're big and sometimes they're small. I remember I was teaching about water one year and the students wanted to represent bubbling. And so they all crouched down. And they were grade two students and they, they all just started bouncing little, little bounces. And then sometimes, then one, every, at different times, the different students would just explode up <laughs> and they were like bouncing, bouncing, explode up. And it, it was just a great reminder for me that learning is also like that. These explosions don't all happen at the same time that people are exploding and experiencing things at different times and how do we make space for that and how do we make space for noticing it right that that there's a, a place for noticing the explosion so I just think that's really lovely um, but there are a lot of ways that we are teaching um, teaching that idea of leveling and surveillance and 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 not necessarily having enough time for love you know at, at the uh, at the, at the base of all forms of oppression, right, is a belief in the leveling of people and then assigning more value to some than to others. And there's that sense of fragmenting, isolating, leveling, and then assigning value. And I think there are many, many ways that we do that in the classroom. Um, we take the wholeness of the world and we fragment it and we isolate it in the subject areas and then in the, in the curriculum outcomes. And um, then we assign differing values to those things. And that teaches a lesson about what is valued and who is valued and whose stories are valued and what kind of learning is valued um, based on how we assess and what we say is important and what's on the PATs, right? Um, all of those things teach. I think that's so helpful. And I, I just also appreciate the, the framing of like the implicit curriculum can also be good. Like we as we notice, as we create space, we can do that in ways that um, that support that love of learning, that that connection, that feeling seen. Like I think that's such a great reminder that it's um, that the space, everything is a teacher, and everything teaches uh, is is such a helpful piece. And and part of our conversation today is like really thinking through that lens of anti oppressive practice. So you talked about. Um, how that kind of implicit curriculum really teaches and reinforces things through the ways that bodies are organized and coordinated and moved moved through spaces, sometimes not having agency to move um, within those spaces. So I would love to hear more from you about uh, what we think about like anti-oppression, what role should anti-oppressive practice play in supporting well-being in schools and how can we... Um, yeah, kind of like resist the the fragmentation, that isolation, all of those those practices uh, that may be part of our jobs, and and how can we kind of counteract the uh, those experiences and support kind of resistance to to the hierarchies and the leveling in our classrooms and our school spaces? Yeah, because it, I really think that schools. We, we are gathering together for 12, 13 years. Like, if we really focus that time on wholeness, on connection, on interconnection, on love, imagine how that would change how we engage in the world, right, as adults for the rest of our lives. Um, and I really do think that anti-oppression can also be thought about that it is love, right? Dr. Cornell West talks about justice is what love looks like in public, and you don't find love in the program of studies. And yet it is central to the human experience. And I'm not talking about like just romantic love, but the kind of love we feel for family and friends and your pet and yourself and the planet and your activities and the world. And we know what that feels like and what it takes. And um, 
So there are so many things. If we focus in on that, how are we helping people to fall in love with the world as a whole, not just as something to control, but something to connect in. And I think that, um, that's just really important to recognize those co- the qualities of love. It's something that you feel this great value for and you're curious about it and you're celebrating it and you hold it close and you're also allowing it to fly, that kind of love. And that happens through um, representation, being seen in the classroom and seeing yourself in the curriculum, in the stories that are told, in the families that are represented, in the relationships that we see, in the in the stories that we tell, in the histories that we learn about, in the way that we engage with our bodies and we don't have to deny our bodies in our classrooms. That tells us to love our, our bodies as places of knowing and as ways of learning. So that representation is important, but that sense of wholeness is really important because what we are offered in the program of studies is a fractured world. It's fragmented into pieces that are bite-sized pieces that are easy to um, digest, right? But we have, but I think as our, our job as teachers is to help our students to put that, put that world back together. And it, and I think it doesn't have to be really challenging. It can be as easy as asking your students, where do fractions show up in the world? That's your homework. Go on a walk, play your guitar, do your dancing, play in your in your on your sports team and notice where do fractions show up in making the world whole. And just asking that question, um helps us to take the pieces that were offered, these fragmented pieces, and and put them back together. And when we do create that wholeness, what we recognize is that every single person is important and every part of the earth is important. And when we recognize that everything is valued on a circle of interdependence and interconnection, rather than on a hierarchy of control, um, it also makes us feel safer. Because if even if I think about like what it feels like to climb on a ladder, like often we represent progress as this ladder, right? And you're going up higher and higher and the higher level is valued. But when you're standing on a, a high, high ladder, it's really can be scary because there's that sense that you could fall at any moment and you're really dependent on the people at the bottom of the ladder to hold it still. And I think that any time that we are creating a sense of hierarchy, um, it's also creating a sense of unsafety because we know that in our souls, I think we know that the hierarchy is is um, just socially constructed and that any moment we could be on the bottom. And I don't want anyone to feel that way. I think that it's important that we recognize that we are all part of this circle of interconnection and that every single one of us is valued. And if the world didn't have one of us, the world would be different. It wouldn't be the same. And that we are then also important to the world and that our engagement is important. And I think that if we really just start from that, that we don't need to always know everything about all the forms of oppression, we can start from wholeness and saying every single person in the in the world is valued and every single way that we learn is valued and every single history is valued because it makes up the whole of the world. And I think that that is a, just a one, one step in to say like, I'm just going to focus on wholeness because I think that it's unrealistic to offer students a fractured and fragmented world and then expect them to live in the world in a whole way because we've taught them for 13 years Mm -hmm. that it's fragmented right like the way that we teach students teaches them how to treat the world Mm -hmm. and so i think that that is a great way to start and say how can we really focus on wholeness how can we put the world back together in our classrooms every day take the pieces that we're given and, and put them back together. That's, I, I really appreciate that. I think that's such a, um, like a accessible <laughs> a, approach to beginning this work in our classrooms when it feels so challenging, right? Like you, you mentioned at the beginning wanting to change the world and then feeling like it's, it's too big for one person, but truly like that, that it, like every, every teacher pre-service in service or educator in any context can begin in that place and and sh- 
create change um, through that lens of wholeness. And I, my next question is about uh, arts integration, but I realize in the language of arts integration, like that, that acknowledges that um, fractured approach to, to teaching and education, like art, art as separate as subject matter and, and separate from other aspects. But uh, I'm, I'm really interested in how you use the arts um, as an educator, as a scholar, like that connection to, to artistic practice. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the connections that you make, that wholeness that through art that you uh, create in curriculum and while being using dance, using poetry um, for for students and and for your own understanding as an educator. Yeah, I I think it's a great point that the arts when we say arts integration, or if I say I'm teaching through movement, like it is a sense that, and we've gotten that language of we're going to have a body break, right? Like, like that the break using your body might be a break from learning or that there's some kind of break there instead of saying like, now we're going to learn through our bodies. And we always are actually learning through our bodies. There's never actually a time when we aren't, we're just learning different things. Um, my son is a mover and he used to tell me like, sometimes it feels like my legs are on fire and I have to sit so long at school. So that idea, like we are learning things. And if we have to focus so much on being still, then it's hard to think about frac like <laughs> fractions. It's hard to think about um, social studies. So I think that recognizing and embracing our whole selves in the classroom, right, is that, is that great first step. Um so yeah, I as I mentioned before with my with my um, research, I used that method, and that's a method that I've used um, when I'm teaching through movement in classes. That we start by writing a poem about the topic that we are learning about, and then we find ways to make shapes or our movements that represent each of those words. And then we create a dance together and we put it to music and we look at it together and we say, what did you, what does this dance say about this topic that we were learning about? And then we talk about that and then we try it again. And is there parts that you didn't like and what was easy and what was hard? And what does that tell us about what we are learning? Um, Often even I teach through hip hop and and that also is a place like hip hop is this beautiful place where, yes, there are specific movements, but it's always about how are you expressing yourself and then how are you being part of a collective? And I think that that interconnection, again, I know I say that a lot, but that interconnection between celebrating and figuring out who you are and, and knowing that that is valued um, and then using that to support the collective is is just an important part of teaching through movement and teaching through dance. And I think sometimes it's missed out because we try to control um, bodies in space because that can feel a little bit like out of control. And I've had that experience where, you know, you've got all these kids and they're all running in different parts of the gym. And that's like, but that's part of it, right? That's part of that human experience of curiosity. And, and it's a result of how we've engaged in those open spaces before too. Um, but I think that that method that I used in my research could be used in any classroom, right? To learn anything um, that writing that poem about what you know, and then choosing shapes and movement to represent the words, and then dancing it together as a collective and looking at it and taking photographs and videotaping it and saying, what is this teaching us? And listening to our own comments, not to my comments as a teacher, but your own comments as students and saying, what did you see? What stood out for you about that? And then saying like, how did that what does that tell us about what we know, what we embody, the knowledge that we carry into this classroom? And so I think it would be so fascinating to do that at the beginning and then also maybe in the middle of a of their learning and then maybe as a culminating piece to say like, what did, what, how did our dance change over time? What did we learn about this topic? Um, I also start my teaching through movement with a warm up. It's designed to not only warm up our bodies, but our connection with each other. And it's really 
important and it changes everything when I'm teaching um, because I think often we do warm-ups that are just designed to warm up our, our muscles and our movements, but to warm up our connection with each other is important. Um, I call this, I call my warm up, wait for it, the murmuration warm up. But um, because it is, it's a, the goal is for us to move as a murmuration. And um, so how it works is we have these series of, of movements, walk, hop, shake, drop, roll, rise, spin, stop. And we do those in sequence and everybody can do it in the way that they want, right? You can walk really wide, you can walk really narrow, you can walk really slow, you can walk really fast, you can walk backwards. Um, and then we move to hop and then shake and then drop and then roll and then rise and then spin and then stop. And at the beginning of the classes, I am generally leading it and they're following me because they're learning this sequence of, of steps. But the goal then is for us to start switching movements all at the same time. And so that really takes without a leader, without a cue, without someone saying, stop or rise, right? There's no, there's no um, verbal cue. There's no physical cue. It's about us watching each other and the students start to really pay attention and I step out and they start to do it on their own. And they have to, while they're walking, they're thinking about their own movements, but they're also paying attention to the whole group to see like, when are we going to hop? When is the hopping going to start? And this beautiful, beautiful thing happens. And it usually happens at the same time. There's drop and we do the slow, slow drop and everyone's dropping. And it's just this beautiful lesson also in the beauty of suspense, right? That we're dropping and we're dropping and we're dropping and we're getting lower and lower and lower. And then all the students will roll at the same time. And you sometimes like they can really feel it. And you see it on their faces. It's this magic moment. And it and even when I'm part of it, I just it feels magical to connect as a whole group and to roll all at the same time because you feel that you are this important part of the group and you're also connected to everyone in the group and you see the looks on their faces and and it's so different than when um usually when we start a couple of kids will will are used to trying um used to being the leader or and sometimes it's kids that aren't used to being the leader will sometimes um emerge as leaders but that you'll see someone try to force the change and then you'll see this change in them as they experience this shift of like, we're all moving at once. We're all connected. We're all like interconnected as one group. Um, and it's really, really powerful. And that warm up that we do every single day, warming up our connection to each other changes everything that we do in the rest of the hour um, because we are We've established that that's important, that it's not important about leadership, um, one leader, and it's not important about dominance. It's important about connection and paying attention to each other and um, and sensing each other, right? It's about sensing each other. And so I'd say that's probably one of the most powerful things that I've done in my teaching is to establish that that sense of connection right from the beginning of every day. That's that's so incredibly powerful. I love that uh, tuning in to one another because I think some some of our practices are uh, as as classroom teachers are about order and tuning out and and like focus away from others. Um, I think that's such a, a powerful experience and an opportunity to to connect in so many different contexts, like not just even the physical activity or physical education space, but to really tune in and feel feel that sense of connection. Um, as an important part of learning. Uh, I'm curious, based on that example of, of tuning in and connecting, how, how might embodied movement play a role in supporting teacher well-being um, and how teachers examine you know, their own relationship to disconnection from one another um, you know, as part of kind of teacher professionalism and, and being in a classroom all day and kind of separate from, from colleagues? Yeah, because like teachers are human beings, <laughs> like we're human beings and we are not meant to be sedentary or isolated. Um, but often teachers can become isolated and somehow 
it can feel sedentary and like we're run off our feet. I don't know how that happens at the same time, <laughs> it's but so it, true. It, it could feel like I, I'm not allowed to move around fully, but I'm exhausted like <laughs> from that. But um, when I go into schools, when I went into schools, there would be teachers who would think that this is a lesson for the students and they would sit on the bench and they would sometimes do marking. And then there would be teachers who would dance. And that is just one of the joys for me is to watch them laughing and joyful and connected. And also to see the students watching their teachers learn, right? And to enjoy things and to connect as part of the learning group, as part of the circle. We're all kind of learning this thing together now, right? That's a really powerful experience. And I think that it's just so important because there's a, a lot about the way that school is structured that can deny or control our basic human needs um, beyond learning. And, you know, I went to a retirement party for a teacher colleague. And at one point, people were joking and saying, oh, finally, you can go to the bathroom whenever you want. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> like, that's so true, but so horrifying, right? Like, there's that sense that even all of these things about our basic kind of human needs, going to the bathroom, when you can eat, when you can be resting, when you can be connected, when you can be creative, all of those things get placed on a schedule. And it, it's this sense of kind of denying our humanity in a lot of ways. And so refining that way of, of connecting and moving and embracing our fullness as our wholeness as a human being, um, I think is really, really important. When I switched from teaching in the, in the high school to staying home with my kids, it took me months, months to learn how to walk at a, like a comfortable pace. Because I was so used to like, I had this High fast, it. Yeah. yes, from classroom to classroom, I got, I got three seconds to get from English to dance, like, and I thought that was really shocking. But, um, you know, the interesting thing about my research, it started by, I tried all of these methods out on myself. And I tried to tune into what are my, um, my human kind of, my um, tactile memories of schooling. And a big one that came up was peeing my pants in, in grade two, I peed my pants. And when I started talking to other people about it, um, many people had an experience of peeing their pants. And if you ask someone like, what's the most embarrassing thing that happened to you at school? Uh, a lot of people would talk about peeing their pants or like, and or other things that mm -hmm. happened like, and it was all about these, like our human, a lot of them were about our body fluids leaking out. So like we were peeing our pants or getting your period or crying or having to blow your nose, like, and the sense of like this control and also a shame that we've learned about our bodies in school really came up about how did we learn to think that all these things that are just natural, normal, even now, if I'm in a meeting and my like stomach does this huge rumble, <laughs> it feels somehow so embarrassing, but these are just human body things that we have learned to be embarrassed about our humanity and our basic humanness. And I think that, that that's part of like getting more in touch with our bodies and moving and, and recognizing that we are human beings and teachers are human and they need to move around and they, and they need to have creative spaces and they need to have the curiosity, right? That sometimes we create, um, these lessons for students to be curious, but we kind of also have a sense of what's going to happen because we want to have that control over, over the lesson. And that's one of the things I love about teaching through movement is that there is no, um, like you can't predict what someone's going to do and you have to be able to respond in real time. And it makes a real space for all of us to be curious about how are we going to represent this idea through movement? But, um, I think some often we spend so much time trying to control things that we miss out on the time to connect. And I think that that's, that's where dance and movement and, and embracing our human bodies can really help us to, to get back to that connection. 
I really appreciate all of your your examples uh, from your experience with with dance and em- embodied movement and like what you've learned from yourself and le- what you've learned from students. And I'm wondering if you could share now some of the some of those examples of like the most impactful things that you learned from students in your work that would support our listeners in maybe that more mindful uh, approach to teaching, teaching and learning? I think, you know, the greatest thing that I learned from the students is that they know so much more than they can tell with words. And I know that, you know, Michael Polanyi said, we know more than we can tell. But to experience that in the class was really powerful. And that's kind of also where my research started is um, I was teaching in in a school and we was teaching through movement and they were talking about immigration. And I said they wanted to represent different reasons that someone might immigrate to Canada. And one of them wanted to represent, one group wanted to represent education. And they created this shape that represented education for them. And it was literally an arrow with the teacher at the point and then and standing up and then it went lower and lower and lower levels of students kind of like um, making the rest of the arrow and then there were people like laying down and some people were in a group and some people were isolated and it just represented so much of what students know about school but probably if I had asked them right about school I don't know that that stuff would have come up and um they they created these images of of um of collection and of of community that that were really complex in terms of of experiencing things together but also feeling isolated by that some people being connected and that sense of isolation and and loneliness and there was just so many things about that that were really powerful watching what they were going to create because it's not limited to the answers that I had on a worksheet right it's open to your experience and also trusting that your first instinct of what you're going to represent with your body might not be the prettiest but it's always the thing that's really authentic and it's really raw and if you dig into it you can kind of see like oh I didn't know that that's what I thought about this that's the thing I've learned so much is that when we represent our ideas through I mean through dance but also through different art forms um we get that experience like I didn't realize that that's what I was carrying I didn't realize that that's what was informing my actions. And I think that that, oh, that's powerful. And just, just we're so lucky to be able to experience that. And we can do it every day with our bodies, right? And we can learn to pay attention to what we're carrying. Incredible. That's very impactful, Tawani. Thank you for sharing that. So I've got a few kind of questions that will get our listeners thinking about um, how they can take all of this wisdom that you've shared with us and these experiences and these examples um, and apply that in in their classrooms uh, to to take up that mindfulness, to take up anti-oppressive practice um, and to further their own learning. So I'll, I'll kind of rapid fire uh, these questions your way as we come to a close. So what can teachers do tomorrow to take up anti-oppressive practice and challenge Uh, some of those dominant messages of schooling that cause that disconnection uh, amongst students, subject areas, and disconnection between mind and body? Uh, We can remember that nothing is nothing and everything is something that teaches. So being mindful and aware of what we are teaching, representation, um, making sure that everyone's feel seen and valued and cared for in the classroom, but also in the materials that we offer. And attuning to those absences in like throughout the materials. Yeah, I, I think that's yeah. so important. Um, you, yeah, you mentioned the null curriculum earlier too. And and so, yeah, thinking about like what is absent and what, uh, yeah, how, how, how that teaches, how that reinforces. Um, what is absent and what is over overrepresented yes right there's a lot of that too so just recognizing like how can we take this and put it in the circle of interconnection Mm. instead of a hierarchy where everything is valued equally amazing are there are there resources uh you'd like to direct teachers to to support their learning and and thinking through 
that wholeness, putting the world back together, that representation? Um, yes. First, I encourage you to look for a murmuration of starlings. Um, second, I have this book called Creative Dance for All Ages. And it's basically, I think of it as a Bible from teaching through movement. What it does, it breaks down dance into the dance concepts. And when we start from concepts, we can make connections to everything, right? Like there's a whole section about relationships. And then it offers so many different ways to actually explore the concept of relationship through your body. And what I do when I'm teaching is I take these concepts and I say, what is relationships? And then I say, oh, where can I see relationships in the, the program of studies? Or what are the concepts that are coming up in the program of studies? Oh, I'm seeing relationships, I'm seeing levels, I'm seeing pathways, right? And then how can I explore that through my body? And I go through the book, Creative Dance for All Ages by Anne Green Gilbert. I think it's really important to read the three curricula that all schools teach by Elliot Eisner. That really helped me to think about what I'm doing in the classroom and how it changes and, and how everything teaches. Um, Jagged Worldviews Colliding by Dr. Leroy Littlebear really helps me to think about how our classrooms are shaped by worldviews and to be aware of that as well. And I really think the best resource for wholeness is, is the world outside. It's nature. It's going on a walk and recognizing how every part of our, our program of studies and our curriculum outcomes come from the world and, and how can we return them to the world. Fantastic. And for our listeners, you'll be able to see in the notes of, of the podcast episode all of these resources and more uh, that Tawani has shared. Um, and lastly, what can a teacher do tomorrow to create more opportunities for embodied movement to support well-being for themselves and for students in their classrooms? I think that one thing you could do is to try moving when you normally would write. And I think that that's, <laughs> that sounds overwhelming, but basically I think about dance as um, shapes that move with meaning. And we have three basic different shapes, um, straight shapes, circular shapes, and zigzag shapes. And even right now, as you're listening, you could try to make a straight shape with just your fingers or just your hands. And each of us will do it differently. And some of us will have one finger pointing up and some of us will have two fingers and some of us will have all the fingers pointing forward or some of us will have all the fingers pointing up and recognizing there's a million different ways to do that with just our hands. And then once we know how that we can make different shapes with our bodies, I can say to you, um, make a shape with your hands that represents wholeness. So even if you do that right now, Jamie, um, now describe what did you what did you do to your shape? What is your what did your hands do when I said make a shape with, that represents wholeness with your hands? I am trying to like with my fingers, the tips of my fingers are touching and and kind of creating like a spheric, connected, circular, three dimensional shape. Yeah. So when we look at that. And my hands, I made a fist with one hand and I wrapped my other hand around mm. it, kind of like a spiral. So we have two different shapes that really teach us about wholeness because we notice also not just what you did, but what you didn't do, right? You didn't make a triangle, mm -hmm. but yeah. you chose to make a circle um, with your fingertips all touching. So there's that sense of connection that happens when that's one of the things we can learn from your shape is that there's a sense that everything is a connection and there's no break in the circle, that there's no um, place where it starts and place where it ends. And so then that is a sense of like learning about equality and equity right there. So thinking about how you made that. And then if we think about mine, mine looks like a spiral, kind of like a snail shell. So then we can see that wholeness in my representation is something that starts from a point and grows outward. It grows bigger. It doesn't necessarily grow taller and leveled, but it grows wider and more encompassing. Um, so see how like right in that one moment, we can just make a shape with our hands that represents an idea. And then we can think about like, and then even if I asked you if we had time, I would ask you, like, why did you make that shape? And what does it mean? And um, what word describes that shape that you made? And then if you took all the words that you would use to describe your shape, you could make that into a poem about wholeness, right? And what does that shape tell us about wholeness in science? What does your shape tell us about wholeness in science? And what does mine tell us? And what do they tell us together? And how does it represent our classroom? 
right? And how does it represent this discussion that you and I are having? That when you made that shape was also two hands coming together to make it this connected circle. Ah, that's such a beautiful way of, of representing the, this podcast, right? That you are coming together, bringing another, another hand in to make the wholeness that we can't necessarily make it on our own. So there's so many things we can learn just from the way that we instinctively represent ideas through our bodies. I appreciate that so much too, Tawani, because I think that this like is an invitation to also create voice and space for the students, the bodies, the people, the ideas that don't normally have access to like those conversations in the classroom space, right? Like with um, when you say instead of writing, do movement, like think about those opportunities. I, I think that's such a powerful opportunity to invite more of our learners into the conversation that would normally be left out through that soul modality of, of learning. So I, I really love that idea of welcoming learners into the space through their bodies, their ideas, their representations, their experiences, uh, and inviting more learners into the conversation. That's so fantastic. Such a fantastic way for us to, to wrap up our conversation. Um, before we say goodbye, is there anything else you'd like to share before, before we wrap up? Um, any, yeah, any final words? Um, I just wanted to thank you so much for inviting me into this conversation and to think about wellness in this way and to think about um, my work as a is grounded in wellness and wellness is the foundation of learning that when we create spaces for us to feel seen and valued and cared for and safe, then we can have that freedom to to try things and to explore and to and to um, actually learn, right? If we have to spend so much time thinking about our safety, it's hard to think about about other things. But um, you've really inspired me to think about like how would I start with the question of where is wellness and what does wellness feel like and look like in my classroom as a way of starting the school year and as also as a way of starting every single day. Um, I think that that's a beautiful, beautiful thing that you're doing with the podcast is, is inspiring us to remember that that is at the center of, of creating a space that includes everyone. Thank so you, thank Tawani. you for that. Oh, thank you. And I, and for me, I'm taking away like this idea of wholeness because sometimes well-being is, is like a really complex thing to talk to talk about or or define. And I think wholeness is like the the simplest, most and simultaneously most comprehensive way of talking about well-being is like that wholeness, that connection. So I appreciate that. Um, and thank you for joining us. Thanks to listeners for joining us for another episode of the Pod Class, a podcast from Everactive Schools that inspires educators with ideas for a happy, healthy classroom. Special thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music. A reminder to check out the notes where you can find more information about Dr. Dukeshire and also uh, access those resources that she shared through our episode today. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at Everactive Schools, or you can visit our website everactive.org for more great content and resources. But until next time, the podcast is dismissed. <laughs>